if you've been keeping score, we're at that point in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to talk about marriage in a pretty pointed way. And if anybody, you say the word marriage, um, some people's faces brighten and other people's faces dampen. And because like perhaps no other relationship known to mankind or womankind is there's so much promise, but there is so much capacity for pain. And I know full well that most everybody in this room has been touched either by that promise or by that pain and maybe both. And as I've tried to think about what marriage is, it's rather much of a paradox, right? That there are things that go together that equally describe them, even though they don't sound like they go together. And two words that I tend to apply when I think of marriage are the words magnificent and treacherous. They go together. You don't think they can, but they do. And a lot of you know that already. And so I was trying to find a metaphor for what is something out there that has such great potential for seeing the magnificence and yet being constantly surrounded by the possibility of being treacherous. Well, here's a moment above the Swiss Alps that I think captures those two things at the same time. The beauty and splendor of the Alps for everywhere. It's wondrousness. The wind rushing through your hair, the sun beaming down upon your face, the view all in full gaze, 360, and yet you're thinking, I'm going to die. <laughs> Magnificence and treacherous. And it all came to down to whether or not one was tethered. You're tethered in, you're in there, like it's a different experience. If you're not tethered, that. It's harrowing, full of harm. Potential. I think that captures, in a sense, what must one understand when it comes to thinking about marriage. That if it is both magnificent and treacherous, it requires that it would be tethered to some ideas about it. And we're going to let two verses in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus' words speak to what we must be tethered to. The outline is essentially the same as last week, just with different answers to the same questions. What is marriage? What does it deserve? And what does it need? What is it? What does it deserve? And what does it need? I know there's a lot of people in this room that are not married. And you may think, I guess I could have skipped. And I would just say to you with all respect. That was, we'll say later in the sermon, marriage points to something far greater than it. And that to which it points is so great but also it is applicable to everyone in this room, whether you are married or not or never will be married. That's why it's worth listening to. And I also want to say this. Jesus' words are stark. And if ever there were a week or a passage that requires that not only do you hear this word, but that you know all of Jesus' words in context, this is it. And that's why I am begging him that I might speak with clarity and courage and compassion. So if you're ready for this now... Would you stand as we hear two verses from what he had to say? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
in the same way that last week Jesus spent more time talking about the implications of the intimacy that exists in marriage of body and soul more so than the nature of that. It's the same way here. The word marriage isn't even in the passage. He's talking more about the implications of what we think about marriage more than marriage itself. He says adultery and divorce a number of times, but nothing about marriage. And yet, if we're going to understand what he has to say about this, then we've got to back up a step and consider the backstory behind it. Because otherwise, it just sounds like a really high bar. And rules that we all look at quizzically like the RCA dog. What's behind it? What is marriage? That's what he wants us to get to first if we're going to understand that. And last week, we said that intimacy is sacred. Sacred because it has great value, it's of great worth, and more specifically in terms of the nuance of sacredness, it is greater than what first appears. It has a significance that it possesses that is larger than one might first notice. This week, we're going to talk about sacredness again because marriage is sacred, but we're going to think about it from a little bit of a different angle about what sacredness is. In this sense, we're going to talk about sacred as something synonymous with the word holy because those words are often interchangeable. So when you talk about sacredness, you're also talking about holiness. And when you're talking about holiness, that in some ways not only does it mean a perfection or a purity, it also refers to something that is set apart, that is distinguished for particular purposes. That's the, the aspect of sacredness that I want to focus on this week when we're talking about Jesus' words in general about marriage. It is a set-apart category, a quality of having a particular purpose. Um, the lights <clears throat> that are beaming down here, the chair that you're sitting on, the stand that I'm using, they all have a particular purpose. If I treat the chair or if I treat a light like a chair, I will burn my backside. If I will try to make the stand into a light, we will all sit in darkness. Every one of those things, common things, mundane things, they all have a purpose. They're set apart for that. And if you try to use them in ways um, alternative to their purpose, then you're wasting your time and you're missing its point. Marriage has a point. Marriage is sacred in that it has purposes. And so the question is, what purposes does it bear? If you want to talk about sacredness and holiness, all you got to do is turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. When, when God says of Israel, he says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. That Israel, the nation, was set apart for particular purposes, namely to be a people for his own possession, that it might be a blessing unto all nations. That was his holiness. That was its sacredness. And then the apostle Peter, later in 1 Peter chapter 4, he will say, of the church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In a couple of weeks, pe more people are going to join our body by way of formal membership. Why? So that they can end up on a spreadsheet? No. But so that they can mark their own identification with this body to understand themselves as those who are a royal priesthood who are given a particular purpose to proclaim the excellencies of God. They are not there to say we are better than those who are not of the church. But they are here to say, as is anybody who identifies with a body of believers, that they have a distinct purpose. And in that sense, they are sacred. That's what holiness, what sacredness provides. So in what sense is marriage sacred? 
I'll give you a few ways in which it is set apart for particular purposes. One of which is, it's sacred in what it can offer. Marriage is unique in what it can offer in form of of presence and provision and protection and pleasure. Other kinds of relationships can provide those in certain ways. Marriage provides it uniquely, distinctly, particularly. And so if you just want to consider uh, the, the case for why uh, it is sacred in terms of what it can offer, you remember the passage we read last week from Genesis chapter 2, when God says unto Adam there in the garden, it is not good for a man to be alone, but he needs one fit for himself, a fit helper to assist him. And that word there for the woman is the word ezer. And it's the Hebrew word for helper, but it's a word that is applied there, but it's a word that God applies to himself. In that sense, the woman bears the distinct dignity of possessing a characteristic that only is reserved for God himself. And therefore, in that, there is both provision, there is presence, there is companionship, there is feedback in real time. That's one of its purposes. Though the passage refers more so to the nature of friendship, it is equally applicable to the idea of marriage. When in Ecclesiastes 4, it says, Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? In marriage, there's a unique sense in which one might find the protection that one needs in this world that is both cold and dark at times. And though that is also true of friends, it is also true of those who are married. It provides provision, presence, protection. It also provides pleasure. And last week we read that very evocative passage from Song of Solomon, chapter 2, when he writes very evocatively, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. In marriage... Where there is trust, it is the unique context in which vulnerability may be shared. And in that vulnerability, great delight. And that is one of the things in which it can offer. And those are all excellent words. All excellent ideas that capture the sacredness of what marriage can offer. But sometimes there's a way of capturing its essence and its sacredness in just images and music alone. There it is what it can offer and there's a certain beauty and majesty to it even though it's a fairy tale story but it's what it offers it's one of its sacredness another aspect of it is what it can bring forth not only in what it can offer but what it can bring forth and and surely we might mention children in that regard marriage is an excellent way in which to bring forth children as well as to rear them it's rather effective in that way or it can be but surely as even in the story says it's progeny doesn't always show up in the mix doesn't always happen, and, and that in no sense foils the purposes of marriage. In fact, what it can bring forth is actually something just as beautiful, but with no less pain. And so in a very different setting, in a very different kind of film, I want to show you just a, an account or a clip from this movie called The Breakup, which is aptly titled because it's all about how people are brought to the brink of ending their relationship. And I want you to listen very carefully to what they're fighting over and how in that ways it speaks to what is it that marriage is out to correct and redeem in each one of us. 
by virtue of being brought together in the form of that commitment. Watch this. You knew I was working today and I made that meal and you could have thought to yourself, you know, you could have said, I think I'm going to get Brooke some flowers. You said on our very first date that you don't like flowers, that they're a waste of money. Every girl likes flowers, Gary. You say that you don't like flowers. I'm supposed to take that to mean that you do like flowers? No, this is not about... You're not... You're not... You're, you're, you're not getting it. You're not getting this, Gary. Okay, it's not about the lemons. It's not about the flowers. It's not about the dishes. It's just... Um, how many times do I have to drop hints about the ballet? You know I can't stay. Brooke, come here. You got a bunch of dudes in tights flopping around for three hours. It's like a medieval techno show. It's a nightmare. For, I sit there in the sweat. The whole thing. I do. It's not about you loving the ballet, Gary. It's about the person that you love loves the ballet and you want to spend time with that person. Not when they're at the ballet. Okay, forget the ballet. Forget the ballet. We don't go anywhere together. We just went to Ann Arbor together. To Ann Arbor. To the Michigan Notre Dame game. You think... You think screaming drunk kids and leprechauns doing backflips, that's fun. That's fun for me. Come on, man. I did that for you. What do you, how do you show up for me? I'm up on the bus every day Come for you. Come on. You I'm busting to be the best tour guide in the city so I can make enough money to support both of us and hopefully you won't have to work one day. I want to work. All I ask, Brooke, is that you show a little bit of appreciation that I just get 20 minutes to relax when I come home instead of being attacked with questions and nag the whole time. You think that I nag you? That's all you do. All you do is nag me. The bathroom's a mess. Your belt doesn't match. Hey, Gary, you should probably go work out. Nothing I ever do is ever good enough. I just want to be left alone. Really? Is that what you want, Gary? Is that what you want? Yeah. That's what you want? Yeah. Fine. Great. Do whatever you want. You leave your socks all over this house, dress like a pig, play your stupid video game. I don't care. I'm done. What? I am done. I don't deserve this. I really do not deserve this. So you might say that that moment is not resolved yet. But what you heard were two people struggling. Struggling to think of someone other than themselves. Struggling to embrace what the other embraced. Struggling to know how to fight for this thing that is between them. And that word there of hers at the end that sounds rather defiant and definitive, I am done, I do not deserve this. It reflects a certain understanding of what they think marriage is. That it may be mostly this idea of what you want, prefer, or deserve. And that's why another sacred purpose of marriage is not simply what it offers or what it can bring forth, but what it points to. When we talk about the Lord, there are certain words that we apply to him. We know him as creator and as almighty. And as you heard in our affirmation of faith, as Jesus broadly and deeply underscores, we think of God as father. But there are words that we need to add to our list of thinking about who God is. Namely, two words like bridegroom and husband. That language from marriage, God uses to explain his being. And so you hear in Isaiah 62, For as young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As you heard in the Old Testament reading, the prophet Hosea says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
And perhaps most explicitly put in the prophet Ezekiel's words, the Lord says unto Israel, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God is borrowing, or it's actually his to begin with, using his language about marriage to explain his very being. And the reason I make that a point unto you is this. When a cop puts on his uniform, when a soldier puts on his uniform, when a doctor puts on his white coat, it's more than a uniform. It represents something greater than they themselves. It represents the office to which they have been called unto. When you, if you will, put on marriage by entering into marriage, it is not so you can stock up your house with bakeware. It is so that you might give testimony and representation to the thing that is bigger than yourself, namely the very being of God. It is on loan to us when we put on marriage. And all the privileges and responsibilities thereof. When he was in prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a wedding homily for his dear friend Eberhard Bethke. When they asked him, what wisdom do you have for us in marriage? And Bonhoeffer says this, your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status. It's an office. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. It's more than you. It's more than an arrangement. And if we don't hear this notion of marriage's sacredness, then everything else Jesus is about to say about adultery and divorce doesn't make sense. In fact, it just sounds like old, obsolete, hard-bitten language. What is it? It's sacred. What does it therefore deserve? That's Jesus' second question. And he says it straight up in the whole passage. Whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, it is said. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except on the basis of immorality makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's this thing about certificate of divorce? Straight out of Deuteronomy. And it was an attempt to protect wives from the whims and cavalier notions of husbands. And it was a a code enforced that they might act publicly and properly So that women couldn't be taken advantage of. And therefore the intent of that law in Deuteronomy 24 that Moses helps to outline is there to protect women. Those who are in a weaker position in that moment. To protect them from the wiles of men. And yet, like everything, when it comes down to a code, people can comply with its word but evade its spirit in its greater context. And surely men had tried. And that's why Jesus expands on that idea when he is confronted by the Pharisees in Matthew 19, who ask him, is it lawful to divorce a woman by any, on any grounds? And the reason they're asking Jesus that question is because there's a whole range of possibilities among rabbinical scholars of his day. If you want to read rabbinical thinking on marriage from that point forward for hundreds of years, they would come out with all sorts of reasons why you might put away a wife. If her ankles were swollen, if her nose had a funny shape, if she invited her in, if she invited her parents to come live in the city without your permission, if, sorry, um, if she burned your dinner, you could use that as a grounds for divorce. And that's why Jesus has to go back and say, here's the deal. And so he does. And you know what he quotes? What we quoted last week from Genesis chapter two. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What Jesus is out to do here is to tell everybody what marriage deserves. And what marriage deserves is protection. Protection from one thing, a distorted view of its nature. And by a distorted view of his nature, we're talking about its nature as a covenant. As a a mutual promise between two people to act in faithfulness unto one another with the recognition that there will be days and seasons in which it is not sweetness and light. In which it is not wine and roses. In which there will be sickness and not just health, if health at all. There's that scene from the West Wing many years ago when President Bartlett is suffering from multiple sclerosis and he falls down on the ground and he can't get up and he asks his wife, the first lady, to help put him up on the bed. And so she does. And that's why he says to her, I guess this is why we take vows. And in that moment, that covenant, it's something deeper than just an arrangement between two people. It is inviting God's sight and sanction of the relationship. Because if you don't think of it in those terms, if you just think about it in terms of conventional wisdom, then really what happens is Jennifer Aniston's character saying at some point, I don't deserve this. Tim and Kathy Keller wrote a book on the meaning of marriage and they said, look, here's the problem. When you think of a covenant, you're up against a lot of conventional thinking about what marriage is. And that's the problem. Because if you think of your marriage like a mechanic, you're doomed. You go to a mechanic, they do good work. You think, fantastic, I'll keep going to you. And then then if they start cutting corners, they start overcharging you, and their work starts to get slipshod, you say, I'm out. I don't have to stay here. I'll go somewhere else. When it comes to a marriage, you can't simply say, it's just not working right now. You're not doing, you're not pulling up your your heart of the bargain. I'm out. I don't have feelings for you anymore. You just make me angry. I don't deserve this. The conversation changes when you think of marriage having deserving protection from a distorted nature, a view of its nature. And therefore, you can't simply begin or end in an argument with saying, I don't deserve this. The argument has to transition into something like this, where one or both of you are saying, I don't think this honors God, and I think we need this needs to change. Because if you treat your marriage like a mechanic, you know what you've done? You've set yourself up for a moment in which if the other one thinks that you'll walk at the drop of a hat then you have given them no freedom to fail. And on your first day of marriage, you have no idea what it is to love another person. It takes years to figure somebody out. And if they think, you know what, if I just keep failing and failing, they're like, I'm gone. Then you've not given yourself a context in which they might fail. But it's in the context of failure that you finally learn. And that's why we make covenants and that's why we make vows. Now that said, Jesus does say there are moments in which the dissolution of a marriage is appropriate. And he says when there has been sexual immorality, when sexual unfaithfulness has been committed by a parent or by a a member of that marriage, then divorce is permitted. Paul elaborates on that idea in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, if someone has abandoned their covenantal vow to you in the marriage, you are also not permitted to stay. Now in both of those situations... Both Jesus and Paul are saying it's permissible, but it's not obligatory. Though you may be justified in ending it in that way, it's not absolutely necessary or incumbent upon you to do so. Because the first question out of your mouth is, how might it be reconciled? 
because of the nature of the vow and the nature of this thing, this sacred thing called marriage. And that's why we have to get to brass tacks here. Because even in those instances in which marriage, its dissolution is permitted because it's been a denial of the sacredness of that bond, the question is this, what if I've been abused, physically harmed? Does that fall anywhere in any of these categories? I'll put it to you this way. If Jesus was fiercely protective of women just by being receiving awful and reprehensible stares and unkind words being spoken to them, if Jesus would defend them fiercely in that moment, how much more would Jesus defend a person who was suffering physical blows from someone who was their spouse? You want to talk about violating your covenantal vows to somebody? How would you bruise and beat your own flesh? Do you consider the illogic of that? The other question we have to ask is what if I did divorce? And what if I have remarried? Because the hardest words to hear in this text straight up are he who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's that? In that day, when a woman had no purchasing power, when she was in a, in a hobbled position, to divorce her in that moment was essentially to force her or tempt her to become remarried because that was the only way she could survive. And if adultery is the violation of that one flesh idea that God has set forth in marriage, then you've set yourself up for that. And that's a hard word. So what if you have divorced and have remarried and it wasn't on those grounds? What does Jesus say to you in this moment? Is it possible that you could have denied the sacredness of marriage in committing that decision? It's possible. I can't speak to every situation in a 35-minute sermon. But I can say this with utmost clarity and conviction. You've got to know every word of Jesus to understand any word of Jesus. And in John chapter 4, he goes to a well, and he's thirsty, and he sees a woman there in midday, which is kind of odd, because you would only go out in the morning or in the evening because it's hot, and there she is drawing water. He says, give, her some, can you give me something to drink. And she goes, you've got, no, you've got nothing to draw with. And then he says, I have living water for you. And she totally thinks he's talking about physical water. And until he gets to the point, cuts to the point, cuts to the chase, and he says, hey, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. He gets it. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. And in that moment, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, you know you're an adulteress, right? You know you violated the sanctity of what God intends for marriage, right? He doesn't say that. He offers her compassion. He offers her living water. He offers her himself as the one who might not only tell her everything that she's ever done, but would love her in spite of it all. That, friends, is the gospel. That, friends, is what he says unto all of us. Is it possible that you can deny the good gift and the sacredness of that which he gives us and still be met with his kindness? Clearly, read John chapter 4. And that's why if we're going to talk about what marriage is and what it deserves, we finally and got to land this plane, this hang glider, by asking this question, what does it need? John Gottman is a 
clinical psychologist who knows a lot about marriages. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink several years ago in which he documents how John Gottman does his work. John Gottman reflects this uncanny ability to predict whether a couple will divorce simply by listening to 15 minutes of their conversation in a counseling setting. With a remarkable accuracy, all he has to do is listen to them for 15 minutes, and then he can go down his list and say, this one divorced, this one did, this one didn't. And everybody asks, how do you know that? And he goes, because I'm listening for one thing that is the death knell of marriage. It's contempt. It's different from argument. It's different from disagreement. It's even different from hot-headed words unto one another. Contempt is like an acrid smell of burnt wire. It is a decision that you are so right and they are so vile or so boneheaded that you think of them in an inferior position to yourself. And he says, when somebody shifts from simply being angry to being contemptuous of another, that's the death knell or it can be. Friends, I know, and you know, that if a marriage is to survive, love has to be at the center of it. But you know what has to be at the foundation of that love? One thing, humility. Humility enough to recognize your own frailty and your own failures. Humility enough to recognize the dignity and worth of the other, no matter how reprehensibly they are acting. If contempt is the greatest threat to a marriage, and if humility is the most essential element of a marriage, then can you think of a better resource to push against contempt and encourage humility than the story of a man who died for his enemies? The story of a man who went to a cross and by his dying freed you from sin, from guilt, from death, from the hell and devil of all things. Can you think of a better story to push back against all the reasons why you might be contemptuous and fail to reflect humility? That's the story we need. That's the story that marriage needs. And that is the story that is available to everyone, whether you are married or not. That is everyone's story if they will embrace it. That is the story that Jesus comes to give us in himself. Friends, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? I think it means three things. If you are married, you must tether the story of your marriage to the story of the gospel. You must let its story of love and kindness and forbearance and forgiveness and radical sacrifice, that has to be the lens through which you see your own covenant. You have to tether the story of your marriage to the story of the gospel. You also have to tether its birth, its maturing, and its affliction to the church. Five years into my marriage, our marriage, It was bad. It was in a rut. We didn't like each other. We were brooding. There was something seething under the the surface of our lives. And so what did we do? Both then and at other times when we felt that, we called other wisdom into our world. Because we might have been stupid in the moment, but not so stupid as not to invite some wisdom in from people that were not part of the mix, that were not stuck in the kitchen with us. You have to tether It's birth, it's maturing, and the afflictions of your marriage. And there are, and there will be. You have to tether it to the church for people that give a darn about it that might be able to offer their own wisdom to it. You tether the story to that story. You tether its growth 
to the church, but finally you have to tether its goal to the kingdom. And I'm just going to remind you of what C.S. Lewis, or rather Dietrich Bonhoeffer said earlier in the mix. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status. It's an office. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you're placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. It is in a marriage and in a family that you have a unique resource to look beyond yourself, that it might become a refuge for others, single, married, straight, gay, unkind, kind, foreign, familiar, whatever it might be. That's your family. That's your marriage. That's the resource available for the sake of the kingdom. And to my unmarried friends and single people in this room, if you think, therefore, that singleness is a second-rate way of living, I would only ask you to look into the eyes of Jesus, who was a man who spoke of marriage, and properly so, but as one who was neither married nor ever fathered children. And therefore, if you would say unto him that I cannot flourish unless I am married, I think he would gently and compassionately stare back and say, consider my own story. This is the word. This is my feeble attempt to relate it. And that's why at the end of this worship service, I may have raised more questions or raised more hackles than I anticipated. And that's why me and other elders will be up front. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. If you want to send me emails, we can talk about that too. Because, look, hard word. And if you come to me with questions, I haven't been here long, but I think you know enough of me that I'm not going to use words like a bat. Let's pray. Humble ourselves in your sight, sir that we might learn to love, to rest, to hear words that are stark, to know that it is not shame with which you lead us unto self, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And we pray that we would believe that you are kind and to know that there's always forgiveness and there's always the possibility of a new beginning today. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.